without insects, the world would look a lot different. Without them, we wouldn't have pollination of, of the vast majority of our plants. We wouldn't have animals to feed our birds. If you like songbirds, you should like insects because 93% of songbirds have to feed their young insects. If you like fish in our streams, you should like insects. If you like grizzly bears, you should like insects. So pretty much without insects, the world as we know it would not exist. The world as we know it would not exist. That's an amazing statement, but it actually reflects evidence that insects are in decline around the globe. But it's really hard to imagine what that would look like. Like, are we losing plants, trees, or whatever? Nikki, when you hear that, what do you think? Yeah, well, absolutely. Insects are pollinators for our crops. So, so many of those juicy melons and other vegetables we enjoy are as a result of their work. And of course, they're hard at work in nature doing their thing too. So it's a lot of our trees and plants. Like for me, it means no more childhood with crabapple trees. That's like a sign of spring for me when the crabapple blossoms come out and all the big fat bees come and they're crawling all over it. Even when I was young, it was a source of income for me. I, it was 25 cents for a bag of 20 apples. Uh, me too. When it comes to crab apples, we used to ride around the back lanes when I was a kid in Winnipeg, stealing crab apples off trees that probably had like 10,000 crab apples on them, and we would take five. Don't come at me for theft, please, anybody that remembers that. But um, it was definitely part of childhood. So no crab apples because there would be no bees. This is the kind of situation we're looking at. And, you know, without bees and other pollinators, there would be an absence of a host of other plants from our diets and gardens. And this is because I don't think people sometimes realize that insects make up 80% of all animals on Earth. And actually, the estimate is that even more than that have not been discovered we are surrounded by insects that we are completely unaware of. The evidence is that they're in decline. And the impact of a significant population decline in a variety of insects would be terrible. Scientists are extremely worried about it. Somebody has called it an insect apocalypse. And that term has actually kind of taken hold. But what we want to know is how serious is this population crash? And what are we going to do about it? Think about our last episode, Trash Animals, where we talked about that human disconnect that comes when we think about unlikable animals like rats or <laughs> raccoons. They scavenge for food at the landfill. We have a similar relationship with insects. They kind of disgust us. We found a place in our hearts for butterflies and my favorite dragonflies, bees, but we don't like our wasps, our mosquitoes, our other biting insects. And we certainly don't like it when stuff is crawling and flying around us at a fast rate. I mean, have you ever heard anyone say, I can't wait to see my first wasp? Probably not. <laughs> so what is it about our sort of disgust with insects or that we find them icky or scary? You know, is that something that prevents us from doing a better job of addressing this decline. And that primary question is, why don't we like insects? What is it about them? Our guests have some ideas. Jeff Lockwood, 
He wrote a book called Infested Mind. We're also going to talk to a former arachnophobe, a person who was afraid of spiders, extreme fear, like a phobia. She has actually not just overcome that fear, but now studies spiders. And we're going to get to that all in a moment. We are losing insects at a very alarming rate, and that is where we begin today. My name is Scott Black, and I'm the Executive Director of the Xerces Society for Invertebrate Conservation. The Xerces Society is an organization that works globally to address declines in insects and their allies. Pretty much everywhere we look, we're seeing declines in these animals. If we're studying them, we're seeing declines overall. Now, there are a few bright spots regionally. Think about aquatic insects, and as we have cleaned up freshwater aquatic systems, we see a bounce back in these animals. But pretty much we're seeing declines in diversity and declines in abundance and declines in distribution across the board wherever we study, which is really disconcerting. So we're losing insects at an alarming rate. But the thing is, who's noticed this other than entomologists or naturalists? Have you noticed, Nikki, that there are fewer insects? Well, I can't say that I have, you know. I probably noticed the insects that are still around, like the mosquitoes that are still biting me. Actually, one year the bees didn't come back to the apple tree, and I noticed that. But generally, I don't think I would notice if they were, you know, a couple of important pollinating beetles that just didn't show up on the flowers that year. That's not something I can say I've seen. I'm sure most people are like you. They haven't really noticed fewer insects. They do a barbecue and they're still wasps. <laughs> but there is an example that I think a lot of people will relate to. And l let me transport you back a couple of decades or more. You uh, roll up to the pumps because you're out of gas. You're driving your Trans Am and the guy or girl at the pump would fill the tank. And then what would they do? They would whip out the squeegee and they would get rid of all the bugs that covered your windshield. Now, of course, that doesn't happen anymore. Not just because there aren't as many insects, and I swear it's true, they aren't on the windshield, but also, of course, you don't usually have someone pumping your gas. Yeah, what's full service gas anymore? I do remember when I was young and on family holidays, we'd go down to southern Alberta and a lot of the insects there feed on the canola. And so they splat on the windshield and there would be these beautiful, bright yellow splats all over the place. Most beautiful color. I don't think I was thinking about what it really <laughs> meant. <laughs> no, but you know what's pretty cool is that that experience, bugs on the windshield, has been turned into a couple of scientific studies. So one was in Denmark, and they collected data, basically how many bugs on the windshield, for 20 years, 1997 to 2017. And the way they did it was really cool. They traveled the same stretch of road every year. They noted the time of day, the direction they were going, the speed of the wind, the temperature, everything. So they had this pretty perfectly controlled experiment. And you know, it's kind of amazing. They found over 20 years an 80% decline in the abundance of mosquitoes squished on the windshield. They also found that insect-eating birds like swallows and martins in a separate 
study were declining at about the same rate. They did a similar study in the UK, and all they did was use a kind of, uh, they called it a splatometer, to just measure the number of insects that actually hit their version of license plates. And again, (laughs) it was an incredible reduction. And, you know, in Canada, usually there's three seasons of the year where we don't get insects on the windshield anyway. And so only in summer do you see them. So it probably happens here. I just haven't noticed it. That makes sense to me for sure. So if you haven't seen them on your windshield or the absence of them, there are a host of other studies that are telling us the same thing. For example, in Germany, there was a study where they went out and collected data from 63 nature preserves over about a 21-year period. That was from like 1989 to 2017. And this showed a 76% decline in insects. So there's lots of studies all saying the same thing. Insect populations are at a crisis point. It's unfortunately pretty bad. Insects are declining at rates that we've never seen before. Insect populations generally are declining at 1% to 2% per year. We've had studies of butterflies that show that over 30 years, we've lost 24% of the, of the populations of, of these butterflies. So we can't keep going this way or we're going to see some serious ramifications. So this is uh, obviously a, a serious problem. And there are lots of questions that come out of this. Do we know what's caused it? And why are we hearing about it now? There are probably several reasons why insect populations are falling, but it's been narrowed down by many investigators to four main ones, which are called the four horsemen of the insect apocalypse. Well, there are so many threats to insects, but we can put them into a few buckets. The biggest threat uh, is loss and degradation of habitat. Next big one is pesticides. We use more pesticides now than we've ever used in human history. We use them a lot in agriculture, and that's a big, big issue. But we also use them in our urban and suburban spaces for in quest for that perfect lawn or the perfect rose. And all of that use is, is harming insects. The other big issue, of course, is climate change. Climate change is overlays all other issues and is becoming a major driver and will become a bigger driver of insect decline. There was a study that modeled climate and found that as it gets hotter, we will be losing insect populations even without habitat loss. We've got things like lights. We have the most lit up planet that we've ever had and many of our insects do all of their work at night. Moths and fireflies and lights really negatively affect them. Humans don't think about what their activities are doing when it comes to not just insects but all wildlife on the planet. Yeah, I'm especially interested in that light pollution one because I live in a dark sky preserve in Jasper which means a lot of the park is absolutely dark. 
And what you really see in the fall here is when you have a light on, it attracts these giant sphinx moths. They're beautiful, some of my favorite, but you know they're not supposed to be there. And it does freak you out a little bit when you see them on the wall. But obviously, they're being pulled in from their homes, which are really on aspen trees and other places, right to your wall because the bright light is there. And, you know, what impact does that have? And, you know, they're, like that's a good example. Along with uh, we no longer have grasslands, we have wheat fields. Because we're talking about um, multiple environments. And when you look at the groups of insects that are being hit hardest, it's such a huge group. It includes bees, butterflies, dragonflies, mayflies, you know, the ones that come out first thing in the spring and some species only live a couple of hours, caddisflies. I love caddisflies. They're the ones that build the little houses for themselves. Are they not out of stones and sticks and they kind of drag them around? Yeah. Most of those houses are vacant now. <laughs> they can't afford them anymore. No, they've, they've died. <laughs> oh, way to bring it down, Ingram. Anyways, there are a lot of threats and I can't help but wonder, you know, we've talked about these four horsemen. Maybe there's a fifth horseman, and that horseman is our own sort of internal disgust or creeped outness about insects. Like, does that give us a blind spot to try to help them out? I think that might make some sense, you know, but it, it is complicated. So most of us find very little to love about mosquitoes. Not only are they annoying in most parts of the world, but in tropical areas, they carry a variety of serious diseases. And anybody that either lives there or travels there knows that. And it's not just mosquitoes, right? No, it's like wasps that sting, spiders that bite, bed bugs infest. Like there's a lot of insects we don't like for a pretty good reason. But then there, there are other insects that upset us and there's not really an immediate health reason, like cockroaches, right? I mean, cockroaches can spread disease. But most of the time, if you see them where you're living, you're just upset by them, not whether they're going to make you ill or not. Like, I had an amazing experience in a, I guess you'd call it a jungle hotel in Guatemala where I'd gone to see Mayan ruins. At this hotel, the power went off at 10 o'clock at night. So I'm lying there in bed at like 9.56. And I look up and there's a gap where the wall meets the ceiling in that room that we were in. And suddenly insects start to gather in the gap. Lots of insects, big insects, big cockroach-like insects. And like there's suddenly, as you gaze around the room, there's hundreds of them. Why are they gathering there, I'm thinking? Are they going to attack when the lights go out? Are they going to carry you away? No, I was completely freaked out. Um, I tried to sleep with just my heel on my back, with just my heels and my head touching the bed, which, you know, in an <laughs> arch. Yeah. That is kind of difficult. That's good core strength training. Good on you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for eight hours. Anyway, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure I slept, but... Just the appearance of those insects who couldn't have cared less that I was there really freaked me out. I think this points to the fact that there are many insects or even spiders that kind of 
freak us out. I'm perhaps a bit of an exception with my house spiders. I know that they eat carpet beetles, so I let them wander around. I even give them a little water in the winter. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Where do you put the water and what kind of dish is it in? It's on the ceiling. I just do an eyedropper. It's just like surface tension holds it there. Oh, God, you're so clever. I've seen them drink. I When someone told me about it, I was skeptical, but I have since experimented and they do. They enjoy it. One of them even molted after a huge drink. It was, that was disgusting. <laughs> and speaking, <laughs> speaking of disgust, let me pull this back to the reality that a lot of people don't like spiders and a lot of the creepy crawlies and insects floating around. And our next guest knows something about that. Jeff Lockwood has written several books about insects, including The Infested Mind, Why Humans Fear, Loathe, and Love Insects. Why are so many people afraid of insects? Well, I think it, I think it has to do with two factors. I think there's a, an evolutionary or a genetic basis to our fears, at least framing our fears. But I think uh, culture plays a very large role as well. So I think it's a combination, a conspiracy of genes and culture that make us fearful. So let's take those one at a time. Why would we have some sort of genetic basis for being afraid of insects? I like the phrase that someone came up with, that insects evoke in us squeal or meal. And in fact, insects probably played an important part in both um, evoking pain and they were a very important protein source and still are for many, many cultures. And so they were very important to us. And so small skittering movements were a signal, if you will, that we ought to pay attention because there was either a potential danger or a potential snack moving across the cave floor. So evolution sort of set us up to pay attention to little bitty skittering things. So that's, that was the job of evolution. I'm good with insects. I actually love insects, but not cockroaches. And I feel in my in myself that my reaction to cockroaches is sort of beyond fear because I'm not actually afraid of them. Is there a way of accounting for that? Yes, there is. We can do it in two ways. Basically, there's two universal aversive emotions, right, that all people on earth ex- seem to exhibit two negative emotions, and one of those is fear, and the other one is disgust, and disgust is also culturally shaped to a certain extent, as is fear, and what you may well be experiencing is not so much fear of that cockroach, but a sense of disgust, that it's it's dirty, it's filthy, it's been crawling up the drain pipe, or maybe it was swirling in the toilet and got out, and so I think that's probably disgust. There's a wonderful little scientific uh, experiment where they they took spiders and they were trying to determine whether people were afraid or disgusted by spiders. And it was called the spider cookie test. So you put a cookie on a plate and you put a spider on it. And if the person won't eat the cookie with the spider on it, then you still don't know whether they're afraid or disgusted. Then you knock the spider off. So it's not there anymore. And then you ask the person, will you eat the cookie now? And a lot of people would say, well, some people would say, no, I'm not going to eat that cookie. Well, that had the sense that it's been contaminated. And so that's disgust, a contamination. Other people would say, well, if the spider's not there, I'll eat the cookie. And so that cockroach that ran under your fridge, my guess is if it ran across your dinner plate before jumping under the fridge, you'd pretty much not dig into that dinner. Yeah, that would depend on how hungry I was. (laughs) 
<laughs> there's there's some evidence that we actually become startled before we are cognitively aware of that which is startling us. It sort of short circuits our rational processing. So it's startle. Then I, I think that's often followed by a moment of sort of a dark curiosity, right? What is that? What was it? Um, where did it go? And, you know, one of the things that insects do that really push our buttons is they're really good at evading us. So we tend to get a glimpse of them and then they're gone. And then that generates worry because they've invaded our space. And then we tend to perseverate. We wonder, where did it go? Are there more? Where did it come from? What was it up to? And that's where it sort of kicks it up to this level where now what we've had is our private space invaded by an alien life form. We don't understand it. We don't know what it's up to. We suspect that it was doing something it should not have been doing. Think back on the cockroaches. Whenever you, a cockroach runs, doesn't it look like you caught it doing something it wasn't supposed to be doing? Yeah, I've caught a cockroach doing something it wasn't supposed to be doing. When I was in Belize once and I hung my pants outside when we were in the jungle, and I hung them out to dry. And then the next day, I just kind of wrapped them up and we moved out to the coast. And I went to put my pants on that night and a cockroach ran from the crotch region of my pants down my leg and out the bottom. That was something it should not have done. <laughs> I do not like cockroaches crawling on me, Jay. No, uh, you know what? There are some insects that I actually am very comfortable with, even though I don't like cockroaches. For instance, praying mantis. Big insect, you know, that might freak some people out. But I kind of know it's not interested in me. And, you know, if I had a praying mantis... Now, I'm not sure about if it was in my pants running down my leg, but if it was on my arm, I would totally let it stay there. Okay, but did you know the praying mantis is a very close relative of the cockroach? Like, what's the difference? Well, I, I don't know the exact difference, but it doesn't bother me that it's related to the cockroach. I think somehow cockroaches have a unique status in this, and it's also the way it moves. It doesn't just walk, it skitters my favorite word. Although, you know, other cultures don't have these hang-ups about insects, like Japan. They've been actually celebrated in Japanese culture for centuries. They're admired. Uh, displays are made of beetles. The Mothra, the giant caterpillar moth monster, uh, has been in as many films practically as Godzilla. People in some areas of Japan rear wasps at home for food and forage for giant hornets and eat the larvae as well as the adult fried grasshoppers. You know, Inago, I think the larvae might be called. They're luxury food stuff. Would you eat a fried grasshopper? I actually have when I was a kid. Yeah, how'd that go? I didn't do it the right way. Because you imagine a grasshopper, let's say it's uh, three centimeters long. So I put the front half of the grasshopper in my mouth and bit it and sort of chewed it. But then I made the mistake of looking at the back half of the grasshopper, which was still in my hand. And there was just something about seeing its insides, even though they were either fried or roasted. I didn't like it. I stopped. <laughs> okay. Well, that does not encourage me. But I got to say, a lot of people like them. My sister buys bags of fried grasshoppers when she's 
down in Mexico, and she loves them. Throw a little chili powder on there. That's a good snack. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, but it wasn't a great experience Not for, for me. you. No. And it can be hard to change our perceptions about these things, whether you're eating an insect or whether they're just skittering, as you say, around us. But we can actually change our perceptions. We can get over our fears of these things. And our next guest is living proof of how you can get over it and learn to love them. My name is Catherine Scott. I'm a postdoctoral fellow at McGill in the Lyman Entomological Museum, and I mainly study spider behavior. Have you always loved spiders? No. So actually, as a child, I was terrified of spiders, and that continued until I was in my mid-20s. So when I was little, if I saw a spider, I would scream. I would ask my mom to come and, and deal with it. I couldn't stand even being in the same room as a spider for years and years. I sort of, by happenstance, ended up getting a summer job helping a graduate student who was studying spider communication. And it was at that point when I realized that spiders do communicate with one another, and my job was more or less to record conversations that spiders were having on the web and try to decode what they were saying. My fear quickly turned to fascination because I was able to relate to spiders. And once I started to learn about them and their behavior and their communication, the fact that despite their tiny size and tiny little brains, they are actually capable of very sophisticated sensory processing and communicating using vibrations and chemicals that I uh, fell in love with them. And so I, I've been working with them ever since. I really love that. Now, Jay, would you try this technique to cure you of your aversion to cockroaches? I think I could if, if I use the sort of standard techniques that people use to get over the fear of, of spiders, and that is sort of get more and more comfortable, as, as Catherine indicated. Just get more and more comfortable to them, get closer, finally be willing to, you know, watch them in an aquarium, say, and then put your hand in. I, I eventually could get used to that. Uh, that's one cockroach, though. Uh, I've been in situations where there's many more than one and it might take a little more intensive training to get over that. Nonetheless, there is promise, right? There's hope for some of us who are freaked out by some insects. Here's Catherine Scott again. I know there are even entomologists, people who study insects, which have six legs, who are arachnophobic. I once had uh, an entomologist walk out of the room when I was giving a talk at a conference because she was arachnophobic and couldn't even stand to look at a picture of a spider, despite the fact that she worked as an entomologist and looked at bugs all day for her career. So it's something about that extra pair of legs and the way that spiders move that is odd enough and dissimilar enough to other things that, that humans tend to uh, view them with fear. Yeah, so uh, I, I think that's absolutely right. They're quite substantially uh, different from us. Do you think, though, that there's also a threat associated with them? Yes, so there are a very few spider species that are dangerous to humans. 
But overall, the idea that it's adaptive for humans to fear spiders because they're dangerous, as a generalization, I don't think that makes a lot of sense because the vast majority of spiders are harmless to humans. Most spiders are venomous, but they use their venom to capture um, and paralyze prey, mostly insects, sometimes other spiders. There are a few groups of spiders that can really make a human sick. So in North America, we have the black widows and the recluse spiders. Recluse spiders do not occur in Canada, despite what you might have heard. We do have black widows and they have a neurotoxic venom that could make a person very sick. But they're also very shy. Most people will never encounter them, even in areas where they're abundant, and they're hesitant to bite at that. So even if you're walking around in a habitat where there are lots of black widows, you have to sort of be trying pretty hard to get bitten by one or have it trapped in between your clothes and your skin or something like that. And then in Australia and other places, there are a few more spiders that, that are a threat to human health. But overall, spider bites are incredibly rare and spiders have no reason to bite us because they don't feed on our blood. So you mentioned um, that we don't have recluse, brown recluses in Canada. But you have a Twitter account called Recluse or Not. Tell me about that. So part of the Recluse or Not Twitter account is when people send us a picture of a spider, they tell us where it is, what state or province they're in. And so then we can actually determine, first of all, whether it's a recluse or not. And then if it is a recluse, is it sort of where it's supposed to be? Or is it somewhere new and unexpected? And so we're recording that data um, to determine if its range is, is changing. The vast majority of, of spiders that people submit are not recluses, none from Canada. Okay, now imagine um, you've just met somebody who admits to you that they're terrified of spiders and you have a minute with them. What would you say? I would tell them about how spiders are beautiful often, how they have fascinating private lives, communication with one another, how they use uh, scents and vibrations to speak to each other. And I would also tell them that spiders are far more helpful to humans than they are harmful. And they are important part of the natural world, of ecosystems. If you have them in your home or in your garden, that means they're eating the insects that you might rather not have there. In a garden in particular, and in agricultural settings, they eat the insects that uh, want to eat our plants. So they're good neighbors. They want nothing to do with us. They don't feed on human blood. So they're not going to bite us in our sleep or anything like that. If we leave them alone, they will generally leave us alone. Spider webs are gorgeous and, and incredible um, bits of, of natural architecture. And they're not likely to lay their eggs in my ear. No, most of the things that people have heard about spiders are wrong. They don't lay eggs in our hair or in our ears or under our skin. There's no biological way for them to do that. The myth that you swallow spiders in your sleep is also unfounded. Spiders have no reason to go into your mouth or go anywhere near you for that matter. There's been recorded a pretty dramatic decline in insect populations. Uh, many different species over the last couple of decades. How are spiders doing? 
The short answer is that we don't really know because not an, as much attention is paid to spiders as to insects. However, spiders' main food source is insects. So spiders are sort of the dominant arthropod predator in natural and agricultural ecosystems. And so it stands to reason if insect populations are declining, then that will affect the spiders that rely on them as a food source. So once again, Nikki, the idea that it's not just the insects and their impact on us that we have to worry about, but their impact, as we heard earlier, on birds and now maybe even spiders. And the question becomes, can we turn this around? You know, we can work on our phobias. We can get a little more curious and perhaps a little more appreciative about the insects around us. And we can start looking at this disgust issue because it's likely you didn't always feel this way. I mean, look at kids. A lot of them are fascinated by insects. When I was in graduate school, I helped pay my way through by developing curriculum for fourth grade children and teachers. And fourth grade kids love insects. They just love insects. You take them out to a stream, you find these things, and they love them. And at some point, those attitudes change. And I think some of that's coming from parents. I think some of that's coming from schools. Some of that's coming from teachers. But we really need to focus on getting people, one, to see the wonder in insects. So we need to address what a colleague called nature deficit disorder, which I think goes along with this issue of being scared or annoyed by insects. We, we have to change that. I think some of it is changing. I think the conversations over pollinators and their importance and why one in three bites of food is we need a pollinator for that. I think those discussions, as well as uh, the issues of insect decline and their importance for birds and fish and other things, it's just starting to change that conversation, which I think is, is really great. We're moving, I think, in the right direction. So moving in the right direction, but boy, it sounds like there's still a lot of work to do. A lot of work to do with a population that's increasing, right? We've got about 8 billion people on the planet now. That's going to increase by half a billion more by the year 2030. And most of those people will be living in cities. And, you know, Scott raised this issue of nature deficit disorder, and a lot of people won't have the access to the diversity of insects that are out there because they'll be in these cities. So definitely humans will be consuming more resources and needing more land, which is going to put pressure on the insects, and they will be ever more disconnected from them. The question is, when you look at all of that, what can an individual, what can you and I actually do? One of the things I try and do is like, I love gardening and I love getting my bedding plants and flowers. And I'd really try and find those that don't use pesticides or at least some of the really harmful ones like neonicotinoids. Yeah. And I think it's getting popular to try and plant native plants in, in your yard if you live in the city uh, to encourage native pollinators. And I'm doing some of that here in Calgary, but I still have a cabin in um, the woods in Ontario. And it kind of does its own thing. I don't really need to do much, you know? I think another thing we can do is just try not to kill everything in your house. I mean, some of those insects are beneficial. 
you could take some of them and put them back outside, for example. Not in winter, though. Yeah, put them outside or leave them be, as you do. But, you know, the ones that are devouring your house plants, we leave that up to you, what you do with those. I kill those. <laughs> it's good to know that, Nikki, that you apply different attitudes toward different insects. I do. So, Jay, would you be in favor of bringing back an extinct insect? Whoa. Actually, if I could, yes. I'm sure you've seen images of um, how giant dragonflies were 350 million years ago. Their wing spreads were such that they'd have trouble flying through a modern doorway. They were absolutely immense. Now, the problem with bringing one back is that it wouldn't live very long because the levels of oxygen in the atmosphere then were quite a bit higher than they are now. And that enabled them to get the energy to be able to grow bigger, to be able to fly. Very cool. What about a pigeon or a rat? That is where we're headed for our next episode. Like, is a real-life Jurassic Park possible? What about a zoo full of mammoths? So George Church, he's a scientist at uh, Harvard and MIT, he's working on trying to recreate the mammoth, or at least something very close to it. He's on our next episode, along with some others who may or may not agree with the merits of what's now being called de-extinction. Bring back an extinct animal, or a bird, or even a dragonfly. It's a fun episode, and you want to make sure you subscribe so you don't miss it. Thanks to today's awesome guests, Scott Black, Jeff Lockwood, and Catherine Scott. We'll have links to their work. And in our newsletter, we're going to have a story from Jeff Lockwood, how he, the guy who's written a book about being disgusted by insects, was actually thrown into a near panic attack by grasshoppers. If you like this episode, let us know by leaving us a review. You could also give us your feedback in the listener survey or DM us on social at Anthropomania. We're also on TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And don't forget to sign up for our newsletter, which has a ton of extra episode content and fun behind the scenes of our show. You can sign up on the website, anthropomania.com. See you next time. Bye.